This episode features dramatizations of body horror and brief references to harm against minors and incest. Listener discretion is advised, especially for listeners under 13. Something to note, the story you're about to hear is not a direct retelling of any single depiction of Morgan Le Fay or other related tellings. Today's episode combines elements from a number of stories for dramatic effect. Hello, I'm Vanessa Richardson, and this is Mythical Monsters, a Spotify original from Parcast. This week, in our final episode in our season on famous fairies, we meet another member of the Fae Court, one who blurs the line between mortal and magical. You can find all episodes of Mythical Monsters and all other Spotify originals from Parcast for free on Spotify or wherever you listen to podcasts. Morgan Le Fay is one of Arthurian legend's most iconic figures. You might think you know her tale. A tragic, scheming enchantress working to destroy Arthur and his knights at every turn. But the Morgan Le Fay of Welsh and Cornish legend had much more to worry about than a bunch of men with swords. And her world was far wider than Camelot. Coming up, we meet a woman of many tricks and talents. Another day is here, and you're ready for it. What to wear? Check. Breakfast, lunch, and dinner? Check. Planning for what's next and how to save for it? That's where Bank of America can help. For your financial to-dos, Bank of America has experts ready to help get you closer to your goals. Get started at one of our local financial centers or 24-7 in our mobile banking app. Find a location near you at bankofamerica.com slash talk to us. What would you like the power to do? Mobile banking requires downloading the app and is only available for select devices. Message and data rates may apply. Bank of America NA, member FDIC. Morgan Le Fay was a relatively minor figure in Celtic legend until the Arthurian tales were reworked in the 20th century. She first appeared in a narrative about Merlin's life written by medieval historian Geoffrey of Monmouth around 1150 CE. The text was called Vita Merlini. In this story, Morgan Le Fay is introduced as a benevolent, powerful healer who rules over the magical Isle of Avalon and helps King Arthur recover after he's been wounded. It would take many decades for Morgan to become the scheming enemy of King Arthur and Queen Guinevere we often see today. Such portrayals were popularized in Robert de Boron's Merlin, Sir Gawain and the Green Knight, and Thomas Mallory's Le Mort d'Arthur. Around this time, authors began to conflate Morgan with her sister Morgaze, a dark sorceress. Morgaze originally seduced Arthur in order to conceive Mordred, the knight destined to kill him and end Britain's age of heroes. But soon, the two enchantresses became one in the same. By the 14th century, Morgan Le Fay came to represent uncontrolled feminine lust and ambition. She's a fickle but powerful supernatural force, falling in love with knights and seeking vengeance against those who thwart her plans. And she has an arsenal of skills to help do her bidding. She uses illusions, sleeping spells, poisoned garments, or sentences her enemies to a literal valley of no return, where she traps them for all eternity. 
But as we know, an enchantress isn't necessarily a fairy. So where does the fae in Morgan le Fay come from? To answer that, we have to go back to Welsh, Cornish, and Irish legends that preceded tales of King Arthur. The earliest spellings of Morgan are likely connected to the old Welsh word for seaborn, which itself may be a reference to the so-called Morgans or water sprites of Welsh mythology. Some scholars have also argued that Morgan shares her name with two major pre-Christian goddesses, the Welsh Modron, or Earth Mother, and the Irish Morrigan, or Raven Queen of Fate. So is Morgan Le Fay a sorceress, a witch, a fairy, or a goddess? The answer, you'll find, is all of that and more. The first story Egraine told her daughter was the story of the day she changed. Years before, Morgan had been a quiet child. Born to Lady Egraine and her husband, the Duke of Cornwall, she was the youngest of three sisters. Morgan never asked for anything, presents, favors, or attention. Instead, she contented herself with playing in the tall grass in the fields surrounding their home, following the birds and insects. She had a crown of brown curls around her face and the most perceptive green eyes, ones that looked straight into your heart. She would often come back from her exploring with flowers that she would deliver to members of the keep. Morgan always had the right bloom for the right person, and each one, whether it was a daffodil or a purple crocus, was a prescription for past or current ills. Sometimes Morgan could pick a blossom that would soothe future ailments before they even arrived. It was a talent that amused her father, the Duke of Cornwall. But after he died in battle, Lady Egraine was forced to marry King Uther, who didn't value children and was unsettled by Morgan's odd nature. Egraine knew Uther had many enemies, but she wished that he didn't see her daughter as one of them. One windy day, Morgan went out to visit her insect friends on the heath. She was gone for hours, highly unusual, even for a wandering spirit like her. Late that afternoon, Egraine grew worried. Morgan was no older than four, and Egraine's mind reeled, thinking of her daughter, small and helpless, lost in the wilds. Egraine insisted on looking for Morgan herself, but Uther refused to let his wife leave the castle. He sent out four search parties instead. They scoured the meadows and the moors and waded through the rough waters on the rocky coast. Back at the castle, as the sun began to set, Egraine was beside herself with grief. Something was horribly wrong. The moon was high in the night sky when the men returned. Lady Egraine rushed down into the courtyard to meet them. King Uther was there already, whispering with the head of the search party. The man held a limp shape in his arms, wrapped in a guardsman's riding cloak. All Egraine could see was a mess of sodden brown curls. She cried out and rushed forward, but Uther held her back. Egraine threw herself to the ground and demanded to see her dead child. 
but Uther had her carried away to her chambers. There, Igraine fell into a dreamless sleep, weighed down by her grief. When she awoke, Igraine heard the soft dripping of water on granite. There was the strangest smell of seawater, but they were miles from the coast. She turned over to investigate and gasped. Moonlight illuminated little footprints on the stone ground. They led straight under the bed. Igraine's heart leapt as she looked under the frame. Morgan lay fast asleep beneath the bed, her thumb tucked inside her mouth. Igraine didn't question how she had gotten there. All that mattered was that her child was alive and safe. She pulled Morgan into her arms, then recoiled when she felt the icy chill of her skin. Morgan was soaked to the bone, trembling. Igraine tucked the child into bed beside her, and the two stayed close together through the night. The pale pink and gold of morning had already crept into Igraine's chamber when she heard a language she didn't understand. Morgan was babbling to herself. Igraine tried to hush her daughter back to sleep, but her humming died in her throat when she opened her eyes. Morgan was looking back at her, but her green eyes had been replaced by violet ones. The girl spoke a handful of syllables in that strange tongue, and something in the room shifted. Igraine felt the world twist and stretch. The room looked the same as it had a moment ago, but everything was backwards. The furniture had all rotated position, and even the fireplace was a mirror image of itself. The slight crack that ran through the mantel was now on the opposite side. Igraine tried to keep her composure. She looked to Morgan and said in a firm but gentle tone, Morgan, little love, please change it back. The little girl let out a delighted laugh and the room righted itself. Igraine smiled, relieved. Then she looked closely at her daughter. She looked older somehow and wiser, eerily so, especially when she asked, is Uther going to place Arthur on the throne when he's born, Mama? Igraine told her that her father's affairs were his own. Then she raised a quizzical brow and asked, Who's Arthur? Little Morgan scoffed, Uther is not my father. Then she nodded toward Igraine's stomach, And Arthur is the king waiting in your womb. Igraine's mouth fell open. She didn't know how Morgan knew she was with child. It was still early, and she hadn't told anyone but Uther. Yet still, Morgan knew. Something had changed within her. Igraine did not possess the knowledge to know how it happened. She'd only heard stories of the Fae who lived beyond the veil. But Igraine knew Morgan would never be the same. And now she was left with a decision to hide her daughter's strangeness from a cruel world, or to nurture it because the world was cruel. Igraine was happy that her child was special, but she was also scared. If little Morgan had the power to turn a room on its head, 
what would she do with that magic when she got older? Coming up, Morgan takes control of her future. Hi, listeners. It's Vanessa from Parcast. If you haven't had a chance to check out my series, Mythology, you don't know what you're missing. Heroes, gods, monsters, and mayhem. This podcast has it all. Every Tuesday, take a deep dive back in time, exploring the history, origins, and meaning behind the myths that have shaped the Earth. Each episode of Mythology dramatizes a story pulled from beliefs from around the world, giving insight into how our ancestors saw the universe and how those stories resonate in our lives today. Recent episodes include the epic battle between Hercules and Theseus, the grieving spirit known as La Llorona, and a treacherous journey to the land of the dead. Catch new episodes every Tuesday and binge the classics anytime. Follow Mythology free on Spotify or wherever you get your podcasts. Now back to the story. Morgan always promised her mother that she believed her strange story. According to Egraine, when Morgan was a child, she perished after getting lost in the fields outside the castle walls. Then, somehow, she was revived. It was then, her mother told her, that her once green eyes were replaced with striking violet ones. Egraine told Morgan how in an instant she had transformed the room around her. She had even predicted her brother Arthur's birth. It was an odd story, but a familiar one. When Morgan was upset, Egraine used the tale to remind her that she was special. And when Morgan upset her mother, Egraine used the story as proof that Morgan was supernaturally gifted at being a thorn in her side. By her 14th year, Morgan was a skeptic. She suspected her mother had told her she'd predicted Arthur's birth in hopes of her disliking the boy less. Morgan had no memory of her old green eyes, and she certainly didn't know any spells. She would have liked to learn, but her stepfather, King Uther, had no appreciation for her intellect and ambition. Unlike Arthur, whose robust education would prepare him to rule someday. Egraine had once suggested that if Morgan were nicer to her brother, he might share some of what he'd learned. But that was a lost cause. For Morgan was 14, and there are few things 14-year-old girls hate more than little brothers. It didn't help that Uther doted on Arthur and detested Morgan. Her older sisters had all taken their marriages to lesser neighboring kings in stride. But Morgan wasn't interested in domestic life. She didn't know what she wanted to do, and no one knew what to do with her either. The Keep was hosting a few local lords when Morgan's usual argument with her stepfather began anew. I don't see why you don't at least hear the Saxons out, father. It seems far more efficient to trade than to fight. Uther's voice was terse as he tore into his mutton. You're a master of statecraft now, girl? I'm sure your future husband will love that. Ten-year-old Arthur smirked. No one is going to marry you, Morgan. You wouldn't know court etiquette if it bit you on the bum. 
Morgan sneered. Maybe I don't want to be married. Maybe I want to deal with men on my own terms and in my own way. I could be a nun instead, or a priestess. It is an alliance of a different kind, but an important one. To capture the belief of the people is to have true power. Egraine glanced at her husband's furious expression, then spoke to Morgan in a measured tone. That may be true, but marriage is the best way to secure an alliance. Uther didn't look up from his plate as he spoke. If the girl was so fond of the Saxons, he muttered, he could marry her off to them. Morgan couldn't contain her irritation. Careful what you wish for, father. If you did, I might just turn them against you entirely. Uther slammed his fist on the table. Before a fight erupted, Egraine grabbed Morgan and Arthur and said she'd put them to bed. Morgan complained as they left the hall, but the queen shushed her. This is the way things are, Morgan. We cannot control Uther, no more than we can control the tides or the moon. All we can do is make the best of it. Morgan expected her cheeks to go hot, but all she felt was cold, like there was an ocean inside her waiting to be unleashed. She gave Egraine a deathly glare, then told her she was headed out to the fens. That was where she always went when she was upset. Egraine didn't stop her. She never did. Sometimes Morgan thought it was because her mother wanted her to have a little freedom where she could find it. Other times she wondered if it was because Egraine hoped Morgan would return from the fens with green eyes, cured of her supposed curse. The thought made the ocean inside Morgan churn and roil, so she slipped away to the stables, took a horse, and raced off into the fens. Gray clouds amassed overhead as Morgan rode through the marshland. Rains were coming, so she rode faster, hoping to find shelter before they fell. Morgan relished the splash of her steed's hooves in the shallow water, and the sight of the soft, moss-covered landscape soothed her anger. She was nearly at a gallop when she saw a hunched figure on the road. An old Cornish priestess stood there, cloaked in robes of the deepest green. Morgan stopped the horse and called out to her. Excuse me, but do you think your goddess could do something about the impending rain? The old woman laughed. Storms are where magic grows, milady Morgan. Morgan raised an eyebrow. She could ask how the old priestess knew her, but Morgan was the only high woman of the keep who was ever seen outside its walls. Her reputation preceded her, simple as that. But even so, it made Morgan uncomfortable, and apparently the priestess could tell. The woman laughed again. I thought you royals liked being recognized. Morgan rolled her eyes and told her that she was sick of being a royal. She'd prefer to be a priestess, to lead a life of mystery and magic, beholden to no one. The priestess leaned on her walking stick, and Morgan saw a strange glint in the old woman's eye. 
Morgan listened as the priestess said that all magic had a cost, especially Modron, the Earth Mother's magic, for she protected her domain with a parent's grip. Morgan shivered. The thought of answering to any adult for the rest of her life frightened her. Perhaps being a priestess was a bad idea, but what was she to do if not that? Could a priestess be a midwife? A hermit? No, no, no. Morgan thought to herself, she couldn't simply go from being royalty to not. Perhaps she'd have to disappear entirely first. But she'd have to ensure her mother couldn't find her. And however she vanished, it needed to be convincing. Suddenly, an idea struck her. Maybe Egraine's story about her childhood disappearance could be turned to her benefit. If Morgan wanted to run away and stay away, she could lay the groundwork for a supernatural abduction. And luckily for her, a believer was standing right before her horse. So Morgan told the priestess her mother's tale. The priestess didn't look nearly as stunned as Morgan thought she'd be. Instead, she listened quietly, nodding along as Morgan spoke. When Morgan was finished with the story, the old woman asked matter-of-factly, You were carried off then? Morgan felt stupid. She wasn't sure why, but she wilted under the priestess's gaze. The woman continued, you might remember nothing, but if you've been to Fairyland, you can always return. She said it as if it was the simplest, most obvious thing in the world. Morgan was frustrated that she had to ask, how? The priestess shook her head. A fairy ring, of course. What are they teaching princesses these days, really? The priestess pointed to a ring of mushrooms on the wet ground. See those toadstools? Now, fey aren't as common or as powerful as they used to be, but they still dance in their rings of power. If you stand in one too long, they may catch you and take you back to their beautiful and terrible city. Trust no one in Fairyland, princess. They will take whatever they can, a sacrifice for magic. At this point, Morgan was ready to take any city over her own oppressive castle, even an imaginary one. She thanked the old woman and gave her a coin. The priestess nodded and smiled, a sly glint in her eye. Then she wandered into the mist. Morgan sat on the roadside by the fairy ring, her riding cloak wrapped around her as she let her horse graze. She looked at the ring and thought of her mother again. Egraine believed in these things, fairies, sprites, and raven goddesses. If she gave credence to all those silly stories, why couldn't she believe that Morgan would be better off without Uther and Arthur? Morgan sneered at the fairy ring. It was a circle of toadstools, nothing more. And before she ran off to start a new life in a new kingdom, she would prove it. So Morgan stepped into the ring. She stood there a while, feeling very silly as she smelled the potent blend of damp earth and rain. But as she took a deep breath and lifted her foot to step away, she vanished. Vanished. 
Coming up, Morgan discovers the cost of magic. Now back to the story. Princess Morgan had only stepped into the fairy ring as a joke. She was running away, and she'd devised a ruse where her mother would believe she was abducted by the Fae, the ones who'd supposedly taken her as a child and given her powers. But Morgan was shocked to discover that magic was real, and now she was here. It looked the same as the moors and meadows she'd played in her whole life, yet it was wildly different, too, like a mirror image. As Morgan touched the grass, dew spilled onto her hands. With just a flick of her fingers, she could pull the water from the ground. The possibilities this power presented flooded her mind. All she had to do was close her fist, and she could drown her stupid brother Arthur if he displeased her. Then she could drown her stepfather, Uther, too. It should have felt strange or frightening, yet it felt so normal. The most normal Morgan had ever felt. The air around her seemed to whisper. Morgan focused on the sounds, trying to make out words. Then the world appeared to shift and the sounds stopped. The sky was now green, the grass was a soft pink, everything around her glowed. Morgan was still trying to find her bearings when she heard a strange clicking behind her. She turned slowly to see a giant praying mantis. It towered over her, its spindly legs as thick as trees. Its skin shimmered under the haze of a magenta moon, and it stared at her with eyes as empty as black pits into an endless abyss. There was something about its gaze that reminded her of her stepfather, Uther, perhaps the beady eyes or the gnashing teeth. Then the mantis started to barrel toward her. Morgan willed this all to be a dream. She must have fallen from her horse on the fens. She'd wake up any moment now and rush straight home. But the way the ground rumbled as the mantis approached was all too real. Morgan told herself to do the water trick she'd just learned, and she braced her hands in the mantis's direction. But nothing happened. Or at least she thought nothing happened, until Morgan realized that shimmering flecks of ash rained down around her. The mantis was gone. Morgan wondered where it went, until she realized the mantis was the ash. She stared at her hands, trying to understand what she'd just done, what she could do. She felt the tug of a smile at her lips and worried that she'd already enjoyed this skill a little too much. The ground ran thick with sticky water. Or no, it wasn't water, it was more like mud. Morgan pulled her skirts up and ran through it, following it to its source. A dome-shaped castle emerged from the mist. Part of it was melting, flowing back into the land it had risen from. 
Wherever the liquid went, it turned the pink grass brown. Morgan somehow knew this place was dying. She also knew this land belonged to her. She could rebuild it as she saw fit. This was merely what it was like without her care, and that would change soon enough. She fought her way through the sludge and choked on the sour air. Rats and bluebirds were fleeing the castle in droves. She sidestepped them as best she could, but couldn't help but accidentally crush the rodents underfoot. But it was not enough to stop her from walking. She crossed the castle's drawbridge and entered the first tower. Its height was immeasurable, yet she was sure that if she wished to see the top, she could in an instant. Time and distance and meaning were all hers to shape. She passed under a dripping archway and came face to face with herself. Or perhaps a self she'd left on the fens and moors ten years ago. This green-eyed woman was older and thinner than her. The lines around her mouth suggested a life full of sadness. Morgan opened her mouth to speak, but the other woman spoke to her first. It is as I expected. You've come to destroy me. Morgan was horrified. She asked the other Morgan what she meant, and her double sighed. All magic has a cost, a sacrifice. Some pay their debt piece by piece, but others like us are more practical. Destroy your mortal self and there will be no one to stop you. The natural laws will be at your command. Every illusion, every lie will be as easy as breathing. Morgan struggled for words, her pulse pounding in her ears. But before she could open her mouth to utter a question, her double answered, You must kill who you are to become who you were born to be. Morgan suddenly felt very young. She'd wanted to lie to her mother, yes. She'd wanted to make her own way. But could she do this? And what would happen if she didn't? Her jaw went tight. Don't I get to decide who I was born to be? The double looked at her long and hard. You already did. That is why the Fae took you, why they took me, because we called them with our healing herbs and keen eyes. We had so much potential it nearly tore them apart. She smiled ever so slightly. But now that power is yours alone, but only if you destroy me first. Morgan felt tears sting her eyes. She wiped them away. This other Morgan, this human Morgan, she was just an idea, an illusion. Yet a weight lay on her. No matter how much she doubted her eyes, to harm someone who looked like you was no small thing. Morgan asked, would you hate me? Her double smiled sadly. Has that ever stopped you before? Morgan felt a steady thrum in her fingertips. Her body was vibrating with the locked potential inside her chest. But could she hurt her other self? And for what? She asked the older Morgan if the Fae would try to control her, just as Uther did. The double laughed. They will try, but you are something beyond them. You will live forever. But first, you know what you must do. 
Morgan stared at her. No, no, she couldn't. She refused to destroy her double. The older Morgan was silent for a moment. Then she beckoned her closer, drawing her into an embrace. She whispered, I'll tell you a secret. I was always rooting for you. Before Morgan could understand what was happening, the other woman opened her mouth and swallowed the thick drips of foul water that were leaking from the archway. It turned her skin a sickly gray. She sputtered, but she continued to drink. Her body convulsed. Morgan cried out and tried to wrestle her away from the stream, but her double was stuck to the spot. Morgan begged, she pleaded, but she could do nothing but watch her other self drown and decay. Her double smiled one more time. Morgana, the fairy queen, the green-eyed woman said almost wistfully. Then she melted into the brown water and floated past Morgan's feet. Something unlocked inside of Morgan. She scooped up a bit of mud and the melted building started to repair itself. Stones piled on stones. A great forest grew around the castle, more beautiful than anything Uther had ever imagined. Morgan decided she would shape this world, and then she would reshape Uther and Arthur's world. She would do what she wanted, just as they did. Her double would be the last person who made a choice for Morgan. And Morgan swore she would be remembered long after Uther was gone. The most popular interpretation of Morgan Le Fay's role in Arthurian legend is that of the medieval cautionary tale. Beware of women, writers like Thomas Mallory and Chrétien de Troyes say. Beware of their desire and their power. Morgan Le Fay is a character rarely seen in such legends. She's a composite of the classical archetypes of Circe or Medea, both a lustful enchantress who seeks to control her lover and a benevolent guardian of the male hero who helps him on his journey. Much of Morgan's dual nature can be credited to her Celtic goddess origins. Celtic deities were often multifaceted. Instead of representing the simple good or evil we often see in other gods of the Western world, both the Welsh mother goddess Modron and the Irish warrior goddess Morrigan were potent representations of feminine power in its creative and destructive capacities, and both were swallowed up by the Catholic Church's targeting of paganism in the British Isles. The villainization of Morgan Le Fay in medieval Arthurian legend is a direct result of this effort to demonize paganism, feminine power, and sexuality. But whether she's portrayed as a seductive enchantress or wicked foe, it's near impossible to find a King Arthur adaptation without Morgan in it. Maybe if you're going to pick an antagonist for Arthur, Morgan Le Fay really has the most interesting arsenal. Or maybe we just can't resist a fairy queen who knows exactly what she wants.
Thanks for listening to Mythical Monsters. We'll be back next week with a new episode. You can find all episodes of Mythical Monsters and all other Spotify originals from Parcast for free on Spotify. I'll see you next time. Mythical Monsters is a Spotify original from Parcast. It is executive produced by Max Cutler, sound designed by Brian Golub, with production assistance by Ron Shapiro, Carly Madden, and Travis Clark. This episode of Mythical Monsters was written by Lil D. Ritter and Jennifer Riche, with writing assistance by Alex Garland, fact-checking by Bennett Logan, and research by Adriana Gomez. I'm Vanessa Richardson.